The pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer once said, What I think about God is the most important thing about me. What I think about God is the most important thing about me. It's not the first time that that I have uh, mentioned these words, but I bring them up again today because I think they are so profoundly true. The more I think about it, the more I realize that, that everything about life in one way or another is rooted in our view of God. The desire to, to be a Christian is rooted in our, fear, in our view of God. The choice to not be a Christian is rooted in our view of God. How we treat other people is rooted eventually back to our view of God. The things that we do in this life, the good things or the bad things, are rooted in our view of God. Our self-worth or lack of it is rooted in our view of God. I am convinced that everything about life eventually comes back to our view of God because we are created in God's image. We are created for connection with God. And we only find fulfillment in connection with God. And so it only makes sense that how we view God bears on everything else about life. And that's why... When I think about the purpose of the scriptures, I don't think the the primary purpose of the scriptures is to teach us, though it does that. I I don't think the primary purpose of the scripture is to to give us a, a picture of morality, though it does that. I don't think the primary purpose of the scripture is to create boundaries, healthy boundaries for our lives, though it does that too. I think the central purpose of the scriptures... It helps us understand who God is. To reveal to us the nature, the character, the essence of who God is. And so when John begins his gospel and says that Jesus is the word, and that Jesus is the word who has become flesh, we realize that Jesus is the ultimate perfect revelation of God. And everything about Jesus' life, everything from Jesus' first coming to his second coming, is a revelation of the nature of God, and in that nature, God's desire for us to be connected to him. It comes back to our view of God. And at the center of the revelation of God in Christ is the cross. We keep coming back to the cross. And so during this season of Lent, during these these six Sundays of Lent, we've been thinking about how the cross casts a shadow on people and places. And we can identify with those things pretty easily. It's probably not difficult for us to identify with the shadow of the cross falling on the religious leaders and revealing their hard-heartedness. It's probably not difficult for us to see the shadow of the cross falling on Pilate and and his self-interest. 
It's probably not difficult for us to identify with the disciples and their fear. Nor is it difficult for us to to identify with those people passing by who look up at the pain and the agony of Jesus and the thieves hanging there and seem to have absolutely no compassion. And even when we see the the shadow of the cross falling on the temple and and the, the splitting of the curtain that opens the way between us and God, we understand something of, of the distance between us and God. And the shadow of the cross, as we've been talking, have been revelations, not just about those people and places, but about us. But there's one more shadow I want us to think about, and it's completely different. It really isn't something we identify with. I think it may be the most profound of all of the shadows that are cast by the cross. And it is the shadow that the cross casts on God. Because when we look at the cross, when we think about the cross, we are, we are, the nature and the essence of God is being revealed. And perhaps nowhere more clearly than in the words of Jesus as he is just about to breathe his last breath. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologians and people through the ages have been working to try to understand that. There are certainly theories that, um, that declare God actually does turn his back on Jesus. That God actually does abandon Jesus. Sometimes we, we, we hear that in, in, particularly in songs that we may sing or we may know about. Michael Card is one of my favorite Christian artists. I have been, I've been uh, engaged with his music for probably more than 30 years. And I love the theological depth of his lyrics. I love the melodies that he writes as well. And, and I, have, I have gained much from, from listening and engaging with his music. One of his songs, it, it's entitled, Love Crucified Arose. In the second verse of that song, he says, Throughout your life, you felt the weight of what you came to give. To drink for us that crimson cup that we might really live. At last the time to love and die the dark appointed day. That one forsaken moment. When your father turned his face away. And there is in that, I think in that mindset, in that idea. That God is is so perfectly holy. And Jesus, who has taken upon himself all of the sins of the world with their evil and filth and, and, and all of the corruption of the sins of humanity through the ages. And Jesus takes that upon himself and it is just too much. It's just too bad. And the Father turns away because his holiness can't look at that. And, and I, I do grasp the idea there, but a part of me wants to say, surely God is stronger than that. Surely our God is not so fragile that he can't look on the sin, however heinous that sin may be, however big and deep and wide that sin may be. After all, he is willing to come and not only look at it, but engage 
with us in the middle of it through Jesus. I don't think God abandons Jesus at the cross. I don't think God forsakes Jesus at the cross. I don't think God turns his back on Jesus at the cross. Because God promises over and over and over again through the scriptures. One of the most commonly repeated promises of God in the pages of the scripture is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God says that to Jacob in the wilderness. He says it to Moses. He says it to Joshua. He says it to David. He says it to the people of Israel many, many times. The writer of Hebrews brings us brings it up again. This is the nature and the character of God that he does not abandon or forsake people. And even when Israel completely turns their back on him and he says to the prophet Hosea, I've had enough, I'm done with you. In the very next breath, he says, but how can I ever give you up? How can I ever abandon you? I can't. I don't believe that God abandons Jesus at the cross. But I do believe that Jesus feels that God has abandoned him at the cross. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I suspect we all know those moments when we have, we have done what we know is not right, we have sinned, and the, and the feelings of guilt and shame that we experience. And in that guilt and shame, our first response is not, oh, let's run to God. Usually our first response is, I need to run away from God. Because God can't handle this. God's not going to forgive me. This has happened way too often. God has had enough of me. And we feel the shame and the guilt heaped upon us. It's what sin does. It's what sin creates in us. It's part of the destructive nature of sin. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve have this this fellowship that is so close with God that they walk together. And then the day comes where they choose to reject him. And in that evening when they, are in, when they are scheduled to come together, God doesn't abandon them. He shows up. They're the ones who run. They run in guilt and shame. They run away from God because now they don't really think God wants them anymore. David has those same emotions after his sin with Bathsheba. And you read Psalm 51 and he writes in there, don't leave me. Don't desert me. Don't turn your back on me. Why does he pray that? Why does he say that? Because he is, something in him is saying, that's what God's going to do. That's what I deserve. You see that in Judas. After he betrays Jesus and he comes to the realization, the guilt and the shame of what he has done, it is so overwhelming. And he sees God as so distant that he takes his own life. Peter feels that as well. After, the, after he denies Jesus three times and the rooster crows, all of a sudden the guilt and the shame of it is overwhelming to him. And I suspect he runs away weeping and feeling it'll never be the same again. It's what we know. It's what happens. And now Jesus, for the very first time in his life, 
is experiencing that. All throughout Jesus' life on this earth, he and the Father have been one. He and the Father have been in affirming, loving relationship with each other. Everything Jesus does, the Father's affirming that. It starts with his baptism. He comes up out of the water to be baptized. And he hears a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he continues to hear those words of affirmation. You get to, the, to John 17 and Jesus prays and he says, Father, you and I are one. One mind, one heart, one spirit. Everything about us is one in unity. What you want, I want. What you say, I will say. Everything about us is united together. We are eternally connected. And now for the first time in his life, he doesn't feel that affirmation. He feels abandoned because that's what sin does to us. You know, we, one of the most painful things we experience as human beings is being abandoned, being neglected. There are, there are stories of, of babies who are neglected and they cannot survive. At Royal Family Kids Camp, as we supported this camp for so many years, we gather children from the area, from the, two, the counties here that are abused and neglected. And some of the things that some of those children go through is horrific. And the camp ministers to them and cares for them. But it's not just about children that are abused. It's about children also that are neglected. And when you're neglected, it feels as if you are nothing. Nothing. It's like the children of a neighborhood planning to play a game of hide and seek. And there's one, there's one kid in the neighborhood that everybody seems to like to pick on. He seems to never want to be in there. They seem to never want to invite him into things. And this day they decide, let's invite him. And they invite him into the game and they play hide and seek. And and he, along with all the other kids, run and hide, except that they have a different thing in mind. When he runs and hides, all the other kids take off and run down the street to the park to play. And they just leave him there to hide by himself. Those kinds of things hard to get away from. And here's Jesus hanging from the cross, feeling abandoned, forsaken. Because the guilt and the shame of our sin is upon him. I think sometimes we think that and when Jesus takes our sin, you know, Isaiah 53 says that he, our sin was laid on him. And we sort of have this sense that maybe it's like Jesus picks up this big boulder of sin and, and he carries that for us. And, and, and that's, how he, that's how he deals with our sin. And he, and he carries it, but there's a detachment between the sin and Jesus. 
When you read through passages like Isaiah 53 and you read through the passages that Paul writes particularly, what you find is that Jesus doesn't carry this in a detached way. Jesus actually takes it into himself. That's why he feels abandoned. That's why he feels forsaken. That's why he feels that guilt and that shame, separation from the Father with whom he has been eternally connected. And he cries out. I think everything in God's being as a father, as the loving father, wants to go rescue his son. Remember, Jesus says, if you who are evil want to do good things for your children, how much more your father in heaven? I think Jesus, everything in him, wants to run to him and to say, let's stop this. Let me fix this. No one's keeping him back. There's, no one has tied his hands and his feet to keep God from doing that. It's his choice to be silent. It's his choice to let Jesus experience all of the weight of that. Because if God comes and and intervenes in that moment, then it shortcuts, it short circuits his great plan of redemption for all of his creation. Because then Jesus doesn't truly experience our sin and take on our sin the way we do when we sin. Jesus has to experience that because that's what sin does. That's what sin leads us to. And we often, I mean, we often think that, that the feelings, those feelings of guilt and shame in our sin, that they're a curse of God. Actually, they are the grace of God. John Wesley used to talk about convicting grace. And for a long time, that struck me as an oxymoron. Conviction and grace seem like opposite things. But Wesley understood that it is only when God convicts us through shame and guilt that we realize what our sin is doing to us. That we realize the destructive nature of our sin. That we realize that it is leading us down a path of eternal destruction. And without the guilt and the shame, we would never know that. It is, the, it is the way God has, has created the world and created us as human beings that we experience that. As painful as it is, it is moving us to something better. And God is silent in this moment because it is moving in Christ to something greater. But the thing that strikes me about God's silence in this moment is that he is really risking his reputation to do nothing. I'm convinced that God is the great risk taker. Everything God does with humanity, with the world, is is a risk. Creating human beings is a risk. He has to know there's a good chance they're going to reject him. Putting his his calling out certain people, Abraham and Noah, and saying to them, "Well, you're going to represent me." That's a risk. 
choosing Israel to say, you're going to be my people here. How the people are going to know me by looking at you. That's a huge risk. And how he says the church, you, the church, you're going to be my representatives and people are going to know me through you. And sometimes I step back and say, Lord, how's that going? Wow. And here God takes this huge risk to put his reputation at stake. Because you and I want to look at this and say, look, the right thing to do is to go and to rescue. But God knows there are bigger things going on here. And Jesus misunderstands him in that moment. And lots of people misunderstand him in that moment. But he sees the bigger picture. And he knows the grandiose plans that he has for his creation. And he is willing to risk being misunderstood for our redemption. He's willing to be misunderstood for the salvation, the redemption of every person in all of his creation. Because he loves that much. Because when you read the scriptures and you listen to the stories of people who are closest to God, what you find is that they are people who have experienced the risk-taking, reckless love of God in a way that maybe a lot of us have not yet come to grasp. But what confronts every one of us is not just a response of joy that look at what God has done for us in Christ and the, and the links to which he is willing to go to, for our redemption. But there is always a call to what we're going to do about it. How are we going to respond? And it seems to me that if God is willing to go to that length for us, why would we do anything less than offer our full selves in allegiance to him. Why would we not want to offer ourselves completely to him? What is it that holds us back? It's our skewed view of God. What is it that keeps us from living in in full out obedient trust to God? It's our skewed view of God. We're not really sure God loves that much. And then we see what he does on the cross. And maybe it begins to change our perspective just a little bit. And to realize that if God would take, go to those that length, because he loves us, and because he wants us to redeem us and to set us free, And what could possibly keep us from opening ourselves to him and saying, I'm yours. Everything I have is yours. Everything I am is yours. Everything I ever want to be is yours. Because there is no one who even comes close to loving me like that. And when we begin, when we are all in with Jesus, we begin to recognize other people 
who need to know about the love of Jesus and the love of God in Christ. And we begin to realize and to hear and to feel the call of God on us to be his agents of grace and healing and hope and life. To be people who, who begin to reveal God through his grace to others who struggle to see him for who he really is. So when you ponder the lengths to which God is willing to go for your redemption and mine, for your life and my life and for the life of this whole world, what are we going to do about it? How can we, how can we be even more open even more surrendered to our God of great love. Father, thank you for your love to us. It is, in many ways, it's beyond our ability to truly comprehend. We thank you Give us grace to see a clearer picture of who you are that we might surrender more of ourselves to you. And in surrendering, be agents of your grace in a desperate and needy world that you love. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.